Welcome to the first episode of Information with Callahan, where uh, we cover relevant issues in the realms of news, uh, technology, society, and culture, uh, and more. Today's first topic is that of nuclear fusion. Uh, and in December of last year, I believe it was on the 22nd, scientists finally uh, cracked fusion, and that is they were able to produce a reaction which generated more energy, it outputted more energy than that input which was required to make the reaction happen. Uh, and so the nuclear technology we've been using since the Manhattan Project in the last 80 years, uh, which our nuclear weapons utilize and nuclear power plants utilize, uh, is that of nuclear fission. And the way nuclear fission works is it splits an atom apart uh, and that generates energy. And so the problem is twofold. First, it utilizes uranium, uh, as I'm sure you've heard of before. Uh, and so uranium is a relatively difficult element to obtain. So it's not something that we have an abundant source of. Uh, and second, whenever you split that uranium particle, it generates all sorts of bad byproducts. Uh, you get radioactive toxic waste, which is terrible for both uh, humans and the uh, broader environment. So not only is it limited on fuel, but it's not clean. So we, it's not something that we can just use in every country um, and obtain enough energy to power everything without you know, killing people and damaging the environment. Uh, and that's what's funny is uh, countries have been testing nuclear weapons um, since the Manhattan Project, and it's killed a lot of people because no matter where you test a nuclear weapon, there is some people in the vicinity um, that at the very least are being poisoned by the, re uh, the radiation. And so oftentimes, since it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, it's indigenous communities, uh, and there's great harms to that testing. Uh, and so what they did with nuclear fusion uh, and the way nuclear fusion operates is it combines two atoms together. So it combines two hydrogen atoms and that uh, reaction outputs energy. Uh, and so they managed to combine those atoms and output more energy. And so the issue with fusion has been that it's been done in a laboratory setting where it requires an immense amount of technology, uh, very expensive technology, just, just to generate a tiny reaction. Um, and in the past, that reaction did not output more energy, so there's no point, right? You generate the reaction, but there's no positive energy output, so it can't be used in any practical sense. But by generating a reaction which outputs more energy, uh, it means that you can put that outputted energy into another reaction and into another reaction, uh, and it creates a positive feedback loop. Uh, and so in essence, it's a, an infinite source of energy uh, furthermore, it's powered by hydrogen, which is the most abundant material in the universe. So you're not restricted by a certain quantity uh, of fuel or that which is required to make the reaction happen. And there's no harmful byproducts, meaning that it is a totally 100% clean source of energy. And so, again, the significance is by making this reaction happen um, and the positive feedback loop associated with it, we attain infinite energy in the most literal sense. The limitation is the amount of hydrogen in the universe, which is as infinite as the universe itself. Uh, and so the morning after this discovery was made, which should tell you just how significant it is, is the U.S. Department of Energy hosted a press conference uh, with policymakers, members of the department, uh, and then physicists and scientists who worked on the breakthrough. Uh, and so 
policymakers said that it'll take us a decade to scale it to the point where it can be commercially viable and create that positive feedback loop. Um, but the physicists and scientists, obviously, are not pandering to voters. So they gave a more realistic timeline of decades, plural. Um, and I think the consensus is that it might take 30 or 40 years. Um, but the point being that if you're a millennial or, or you're in Gen Z, it will be around in your lifetime and you will witness an era of humanity where we attain infinite energy. Um, and given the extended life, uh, you know, the extended age that people are now enjoying, a lot of people on Earth will be alive to see the sheer power um, of this technology. And so very similarly to how the advent of computing, which again was incomprehensible, it kind of came out of nowhere, uh, suddenly we came into the digital age, the information era, which is precisely how it is I'm able to record this uh, and distribute it to anyone who receives it across the world. And so the impact of this is arguably greater. Like it is equivalent to the discovery of fire and the ability to harness it. Uh, and so again, infinite clean energy uh, and policymakers said uh, about uh, you know decades plural, so about 30 or 40 years. And the implication is space travel. We have an infinite amount of energy to space travel. We could build giant structures in space that just by uh, attaining more hydrogen and making that positive feedback loop occur can expand itself and Dyson sphere. All these subjects of science fiction will be attainable, but to a higher degree. And so the next topic is that of um, the population crisis that's presently happening in Japan. And so recently the prime minister uh, made a statement that it's becoming a crisis. It's an existential threat to Japan that the life expectancy is increasing and the birth rate is rapidly declining. And so the country is seeing a reducing population. Uh, and so, for example, uh, in the past, I believe the 70s, when Japan had 20 million less people, uh, the, the birth rates were twice what they are now. Uh, and combined with, again, the rising life expectancy, uh, so you take a population pyramid and at the bottom of the period are the pyramid are the youngest people and at the top of the pyramid are the oldest people. Uh, and so for the vast majority of human society prior to uh, higher living standards and the emergence of medicine, obviously at the bottom you have more young people than you have old people. And so it's like a triangle where in the further up you go, the less people there are. Um, but the way Japanese society is structured now, there's a, a tendency for there to be more old people than middle-aged people and more middle-aged people than children. So that population pyramid has, in essence, flipped itself on its head. Uh, and so an estimate, uh, one estimate says that by the end of the century, Japan will have only like 50 million people, which is less than half of what they have now. Um, but this is a general trend in the developing world. Uh, and so Japan just happens to be highly developed, and they're the first seeing this. Um, but as society develops more, this trend will continue. The population uh, pyramid inverts itself. And so the global population will see the same effect in that it reduces and it reduces and it reduces and simultaneously, additionally through fusion, our resources and our capacity to expand and improve society will increase. Um, so it's like there's a curve that's finally starting to go down. Uh, and so the question is, when does it stop? Like it's Perhaps the human population keeps decreasing until it's mere millions or hundreds of thousands of people. 
Um, but again, it's an existential threat to Japan. And since they're the first seeing this population crisis, it's kind of a, an example of what is to come for developed nations across the world. And so the next topic uh, is that of the incoming 2024 presidential elections. So right now, as it stands, and this is according to uselections.com, I believe it's one of the first results if you Google uh, presidential election polls, and also 538. Uh, the Biden is polling about 1% higher than Trump in a popular vote. And again, there's variance in the polls uh, in the same way that Trump was polling lower um, before the election. People were, in essence, just scared to say in a poll that they would vote for Trump, and he received a large spike in votes, um, which he was the underdog, and he ended up beating Hillary Clinton. Uh, right now, the Republicans have an advantage for that reason. Uh, and furthermore, the Republicans do not need the popular vote. Like 49% of the vote is more than enough for Republicans to win an election. Uh, in that, and all the elections that have occurred since George H.W. Bush, the Republicans have won without a popular vote. And the exception is in 2004 when John Kerry uh, narrowly lost. And you have to consider, too, that in that election, Bush was a wartime president. After 9-11, his approval ratings were well above 70%. Um, so the trend in American democracy right now is that of the candidate with a lower popular vote, a Republican candidate's do not need the popular vote, and it's unlikely that in the future a Republican will win the popular vote. Uh, and so this is the way our Constitution is structured. The Electoral College, which again balances the states and the population, uh, there's no getting around um, that lack of a popular vote. And the Senate and Congress are structured the same way. You can't say that the Electoral College has to go without simultaneously saying that the Senate has to go. Because if you take a state like Alaska, North Dakota, something with a low population, there's like 500,000 people per senator. Whereas in California, there's more than 50 million people. So there's 25 million people per senator. And so in general, the, the Constitution structured the United States as a, a place where states and population is balanced. And that had a lot of utility um, so long ago. But with the development of urban areas and sort of the, uh, you know, almost gravitational attraction of rural areas dying out and the urban areas expanding. Uh, the, the Constitution, the way it's structured to balance population in states is, in essence, being bended. And perhaps it will break. Um, you know, there will be reform because the, the populace is tired of losing to the Constitution. Uh, but that's something that only time will tell. And furthermore, the other reason why the Republicans have the advantage is because um, after this Joe Biden scandal where he was found with documents in his office and home, uh, it's created an environment where suddenly the finding of documents in Mar-a-Lago is totally moot. Independents won't care about it. Republicans especially won't care about it because anytime somebody says Trump has committed this bad act, people will say, well, Biden has done precisely the same thing. And so the content of the documents, the quantity of documents, let's say that Trump has been found having 10 times worse in terms of impact and size and documents. It doesn't matter because the tagline is Trump has documents, Biden has documents. And so again, that margin, that 1% margin that already favors the Republicans um, is going to be chipped away at by Democratic scandals like this. And uh, the Republicans are unified. They will vote for whoever wins the primary. It doesn't matter how much they hate Trump. Republicans are a unified party, um, which is also why they're so lethal in their effectiveness in uh, the Congress and Senate. 
So if the Democrats continue to see scandals, they'll lose the independent vote and the Republican vote is already 100% um, for Trump. And furthermore, the primary, right now, Trump and DeSantis, Trump is firmly leading. And so given, again, the amount of scandals he's had, there's really nothing that can reduce Trump to below DeSantis as DeSantis in all this time has not eclipsed Trump. Uh, And on the Democratic side, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are polling about equally, but in reality, again, the, uh, just like last year when all the Democrats dropped out and put their weight behind Biden, the same will happen. Either um, Biden will run for re-election and will probably beat Kamala, and the Democrats will uh, you know, concede that, but in all likelihood, Kamala is going to run and Joe Biden's going to drop out uh, because there's only so much aging that Joe Biden can take before he really starts, you know, losing credibility as, you know, people already call him Sleepy Joe. They point out his functional inadequacies. Uh, So the way the election shaping out is it's going to be Kamala Harris or Joe Biden if he's determined to not be too old and Trump will likely beat DeSantis. And right now the Republicans don't have the popular vote. But again, with the Electoral College, they are likely to win. And the Democrats are more of a risk of losing the independent vote. Now, the next issue is that of the protests in Israel right now, and about 110,000, I believe, protesters are on the streets, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, protesting a far-right coalition, which is um, presently uh, kind of in control of the government, but they're pushing to have more control. Um, and Netanyahu's already on trial for corruption, so it's created this you know, boiling environment where there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the far-right Israeli government, um, not too different than the reaction to Trump. Uh, and so this is one of the biggest protests that the country has seen in a long time. Uh, and that far-right coalition is threatening the rights of you know, women, LGBTQ members, um, impoverished people. It's kind of the same you know, dichotomy of conservative and liberal we've seen um, in elections across the world in the past decade. Uh, and so uh, protesters are also claiming that uh, the far-right coalition is planning to stage a coup. Uh, so again, that heightens tensions. There's not much more other to say than that. Um, but it's important to watch the development of the Israeli administration and those elections and then the subsequent reaction by the populace. Um, because, again, it's a more and more tense situation. And uh, there's only so much that the population can bend before it eventually breaks. No uh, dissimilarly to uh, the American issue. And furthermore, these protesters are more sympathetic to Palestine. And the Israel-Palestine issue is the most important in Israel, arguably, because that dictates their policy more than anything else. Um, And it's a more impactful policy than almost anything else in the world. Uh, So we're also seeing to see more sympathy towards Palestinians and the brutality of Israelis um, by the general population in these protests. And finally, and this is something I'll likely speak on again, um, but chat GPT AIs, we're seeing sort of uh, a takeover um, of the internet and the way it functions by algorithms and artificial intelligence. And so I think the best example of this is At the advent of the internet, you had early social networks, and then you had Facebook, which relies on peer-to-peer connections. So the algorithm does somewhat determine what content uh, is placed in front of the user, but in general, its it's foundation is that of people following each other and creating a network that way. Uh, And you have the emergence of Instagram, which is especially like that, and same with Twitter, wherein you get zero exposure. There's no help from the algorithm or the system um, if you, again, are not connected to other people. 
Um, but the emergence of TikTok has kind of hailed in a new era of the internet where the peer-to-peer connections do not matter at all. Um, the success or failure of content is entirely dictated by an algorithm. So what happens in TikTok is a piece of content is thrown into a testing ground of sorts where the engagement, uh, any post has the chance to see engagement. Um, and if that engagement is there, the post will replicate and more and more people will see it. And the sole criteria of the algorithm is that of maximizing engagement. So there's no bias, there's no peer-to-peer connections, there's no sort of outside factor that's influencing the content on TikTok. It is only the existence of an algorithm which seeks to maximize uh, engagement. And so it's created almost like an evolutionary testing grounds for information. And so pieces of information are put to the test and if they survive, it's like survival of the fittest, they replicate and they replicate. And that's precisely why YouTube Shorts, Instagram Reels are adopting the same pattern. And that's because they want to maximize advertisers. Thus, they want to maximize engagement. And the way you maximize engagement is by implementing an algorithm like that, which solely focuses on that. The more interference you have by a government, a company, etc., detracts from that purpose of engagement and thus detracts from ad revenue. Uh, And so again, it's impartial and it's solely based on engagement in any post that's posted Um, that receives engagement will be accelerated and disseminated to more and more people. Um, So the question is, since we're starting to see an evolution of information in the present system, that is the information that goes through these algorithms is is disseminated to more people. Again, it's like evolution. It's a survival of the fittest testing ground. Where is that content eventually leaving? If it's generating evolution, that uh, essentially... uh, tells us that there's some product that's occurring from the collective feeding of information into the algorithm. Uh, And so the development of algorithms is an interesting thing to watch, again, especially with the emergence of deepfake AI, uh, or rather uh, deepfake and uh, chat GPT, that the role of algorithms and automated systems, which are totally disconnected from human intention and human interference, are starting to play a greater and greater role in our society. And that's it for the first episode. I will start publishing episodes early on Monday morning, as early I can get it out, like 5 a.m. Central likely, um, and then uh, Friday mornings as well to cover sort of the midpoint of the week. Um, and so any topic suggestion is appreciated, but generally, again, a few issues of culture, technology, um, and then the relevant news that has been in that time frame just to keep you informed.